Last week we finished our um, section on the Lord praying there, his high priestly prayer. And now we come to chapter 18 where we find Jesus being arrested. It's interesting because when you look at the different gospels, you have Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And within Matthew, Mark, and Luke, there's a lot of similarities that are there between those three, what's called the synoptic gospels. And then you have the book of John. And John approaches the book in a little bit of a different way, um, also with 100% consistency with all of Scripture as it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. But you'll see things that are possibly not included or things that he approaches differently as he's presenting Jesus to us as God. Wants it to be very clear to his readers who, in fact, Jesus is, and that is that he is God himself. Um, so after the prayer, we know from some of the other gospel accounts as far as what took place. And as many of you know, Jesus went from this time where he's praying with the disciples and praying to the Lord in his high priestly prayer. And Mark chapter 14 tells us that he goes from there to this place called Gethsemane and known as the Garden of Gethsemane. And, and he, he goes there and, and he tells the disciples, sit here while I pray. I'm going to pray. Sit here while I pray. And he takes with him three of the disciples, Peter, James, and John, and they go a little bit closer to, to, to where Jesus is at. The others, are, we're told, are, are a stone throw away. And they, they go, and he tells them all to pray. And he prays, and he says, Jesus prays, saying, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. And he, he goes a little bit further, and he falls on the ground, and he prays that if it were possible, that this hour might pass from him. And then he says, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. If it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will to be done. And then we're told that, that he comes back, and you remember he finds them all sleeping. And he says, you know, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch for one hour? So it's interesting, as you assume, Jesus goes and he falls down and he begins to pray. And John records part of, of the, 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 or Mark here records part of the prayer of what's being told to him from the disciples. But he goes and prays for an hour, somewhere around an hour. Could you not watch and pray for one hour? And they come back and Jesus comes back and finds them sleeping. And he says to them, watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and he prayed. And he spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. And they did not know what to answer him. And then he came the third time and said to them, are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. For behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And it tells us, and immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude, with swords and clubs, came from 
the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. And so there's this great multitude that comes towards him to arrest him. Now, in that, in that time frame, you, you, you hear from Matthew, Mark, and Luke that Jesus is there, and he is just, he is, he is praying to the Father. He's about ready to be arrested. He's about ready to go to the cross, and you can just hear the heart of our Savior as he's saying, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, your will be done. The anguish that is there is, is just, it's, it's clear where you find it in Luke where he, it, it tells us that, that there's an angel that appears and it, the angel's there to strengthen him and, and that he's in agony and he prays more earnestly and his sweat became like drop, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. And then he arises and goes to the disciples and they're sleeping again. And so you, you're, you're talking about hours of prayer. I mean, if he says the first time, could you not watch and pray for one hour? And then he goes and he prays again and comes back and they're sleeping. And he goes and prays again, comes back and they're sleeping. You you get the idea that Jesus has been in this garden, a garden in which he was known to go to. It tells us numerous times throughout Scripture that this was a place that he would go to with the disciples to teach them, to pray with him. To, to be alone with his Lord, a place where he would go and just spend time with the Lord. And just, just as a side note, I, I encourage you to find a place like that. I encourage you to find a place where you, you go, and it may not be where you go all the time, but a place where you're able to go and just spend time with the Lord. Just spend time with him. These disciples, there is, he's on the brink of, of being arrested and, and going to the cross, they just, their eyes are so heavy that they just keep falling asleep. Many of you guys, you, you know how that feels. I see you on Sunday morning. I know that you know how it feels. No, I'm just kidding. But you know, you, you know how that feels as far as just your eyes, like you just, you, you want to stay awake so badly, but it's, it, is, it is so tough. And, and so you see that just their, their failure to even stay up to pray. You see, Jesus going to the cross, not for those that are just, they're so worthy of it. They can't even watch and pray for an hour. And so, that's the setting. He's been saying to them to watch and pray. He's been praying to the Father, take this cup from me, but not my will. Your will be done. He knows that the full wrath of God is going to come upon him as he hangs on that cross. There will be separation between him and the Father as as the sin of all of us is placed upon Christ. And so we come to John chapter 18, and we see that John doesn't record this, but he goes right into this is what's happening. So verse 1, John chapter 18. When Jesus had spoken these things, he went out with his disciples over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And then Judas, having received a detachment of troops and officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, came there with lanterns, torches, and weapons. 
Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him, went forward and said to them, Whom are you seeking? And they answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus said to them, I am he. And Judas, who betrayed him, also stood with them. Now when he said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. And then he asked them again, Whom are you seeking? And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answered, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. And then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Then the detachment of troops and the captain of the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and bound him. So Jesus goes to this garden, a place where the disciples would go with him frequently, and there's Judas. You remember there in, in the upper room where the, at the Last Supper where Jesus says to, to, to Judas, what you do, go and do it quickly. Um, now Judas is there. He's has this, this detachment of troops. The word that's used there for a detachment, it, it comes from, from a word that means this, this band of, 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 of soldiers. And it comes from a word that means a tenth of a part of a legion. And with that being said, it's, it's thought that more than likely it's four to five hundred men or more. So when you are picturing what's taking place here, more than likely, here's Judas coming in with some of the, the chief priests and, and, and the other religious leaders. And he's coming in and he's got hundreds of soldiers with him. It tells us that, that they come in and, and, and they have lanterns and torches and, and weapons. The other gospel accounts refer to the, the weapons as clubs and swords. They're coming in with these lanterns and they're coming in with their swords, and, and they, are, they are coming in to take Jesus. Now, it's interesting, I was, as I was reading and studying for the sermon, James Montgomery Boyce talks about how there's no such thing as, as, as tragedies that take place as far as within God or his kingdom. All of these things that are occurring are, occurring are a part of God's incredible plan that's unfolding. You, you would look upon what's taking place and, and, and Christ being betrayed and being arrested and being falsely accused and, and taken and given an unfair trial and then, and then, and then going to, to the cross and, and being brutally crucified and, and tortured and killed in the most horrific of manners. And people would look upon this and think, what, what a tragedy to think upon this. As far as, here is Jesus, just there in his early 30s. He spoke like nobody had ever spoken before. 
proclaimed truth in a way that nobody had ever proclaimed truth before, had done incredible miracles, making blind people able to see and lame people able to walk and people with leprosy completely healed and, and, and countless other ones as well as rising, causing people to rise again from the dead. I mean, just incredible miracles that the Lord had done. And now he's being betrayed, falsely accused, arrested, unfair trial, and he goes to the cross. And we can look upon this and think, tragedy. But what you find in Scripture is that that is not the way that they present this at all. Those disciples that were with him, they never look upon what's taking place and say, tragedy. Rather, they say, this is what? The good news. It's the good news. This isn't bad news as far as this is unfair, this isn't right, and look at what's happened, and our world has just fallen apart. They present it as if, as, as if this is the best news that anybody could ever hear, and it's because they believe that to be the case. They're here, and, and, and here John's pre- presenting this, and he says, here comes Judas. He's got this detachment of troops, and they're coming in, and there's hundreds of them, and, and there's the chief priests and the 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 Pharisees, and they have lanterns and torches and weapons. But John just goes on to say, Jesus, therefore, knowing all things that would come upon him. Jesus, knowing all of it. Jesus, not being surprised by any of this. Jesus, going to the Garden of of Gethsemane, knowing exactly what's going to happen, having told us over and over again before this exactly what was going to happen. He's now in this garden knowing all that's going to come upon him. And he goes up to them. He goes forward to them and he says, whom are you seeking? Jesus isn't in a place of like, hide me, guys. Try to keep them from finding me. He just simply goes to the garden of Gethsemane, knowing that he's going to be arrested there, knowing all things, and approaches them. Whom are you seeking? And they answer, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus' response is, I am he. Now when you look at the Greek there, it's not saying I am he. The word he is not included in it. He simply says, I am. I am. Now why is that important? The reason why it's important is because in Exodus chapter 3, when Moses is there before God and there's the burning bush and, and Moses says to God, indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they say to me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? When I come and they say, what's his name? What do I say? And God says to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. I am has sent me to you. So when Jesus responds as far as I am, and he uses this phrase a couple times, I am, he is in fact proclaiming himself to be deity. And so... They answer again, saying, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus says to them, 
I am he, and Judas who betrayed him also stood with them. And now when he said to them, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. This is just incredible as far as what's taking place here. He's, he's there and they, they, who, who are you looking for? Jesus of Nazareth. His response, I am. And whatever it is that took place at that moment when he said that, these religious leaders, the people that hated him so much, all of the troops, hundreds of troops, all of them fall backwards. All of them. It's not that they're falling as far as bowing down to him and worship. No. They just absolutely fall backwards. You find that also at the tomb, right? What happens to the soldiers? They fall and become like dead men. The reason why this is important is we find that, that Christ is in absolute control in all these things. There's nothing that's too hard for him here. He's in a place where he is laying down his life for us. There's no one that's taking it. He's laying down his life. He is making himself a willing sacrifice that is going. Imagine this scene. I am. And they drew back and they fall to the ground. Wouldn't you think that them approaching Jesus and saying, Jesus of Nazareth, that's who we're seeking. And his response is, I am. And they all fall to the ground. Hundreds of them fall to the ground. That if you were one of those soldiers or you were one of the religious leaders, you would think like, how did that just happen? Like this is, this is not good for us. I don't want to proceed. I mean, if he can make all of us just fall to the ground, surely he is God himself. We also should follow him. That's not how people's hearts work. When you start to think of the depths of our sin, who we are as people, it is far worse than that. You know that you found people, maybe you're one of these people, maybe you still are, where in your mind it's, if God would just do this, then I would believe. I mean, if he could make lightning just come down right now and just strike whatever it is that pastor, whatever it is, like, then I would believe. The fact of the matter is there's, there's, there's no sign that would make you believe, regardless of the sign, regardless of what it was. It's not signs and wonders that saves you. The depths of, of your wickedness, the depths of, of your sin makes it so that your heart is so hard that the only means of your salvation is the Holy Spirit changing that heart radically, radically changing that heart, softening that heart, drawing you unto himself. For example, in Revelation chapter 16, there's this angel, that, the fifth angel, that's pouring out this, this bowl of, of judgment upon the people. It says his, his kingdom became full of darkness and the people gnawed their tongues because of the pain. And how do they respond? I mean, judgment that's coming upon them that is so severe that the people are gnawing their tongues 
because of the pain. The response of the people is they blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores and did not repent of their deeds. They blasphemed him. In the midst of all of it, as far as judgment coming upon, judgment after judgment after judgment after judgment, now we come to the fifth angel and what takes place? They're gnawing their tongues because of the pain. And in the midst of gnawing their tongues because of the pain and all that they're going through, they don't just say, I surrender. I want to give my life to him. I want to be on his side. I want to believe on him. I've heard the gospel. I want to believe. I want to change. I want to go and spend eternity with him. That's not their response at all. It just tells us that, no, they blaspheme the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. Their hearts were still in a place of, forget this, I am not repenting, I will not submit to him, I'm going to continue in the direction that I'm going, and they did not repent of their deeds, they did not repent of their sin. And so when you find these soldiers all falling back, and the religious leaders all falling back, and you think, why would they not believe? Because that is the seriousness of our sin. That is the state of man's heart. Likewise, when you find yourself trusting in Christ and your faith is in Christ and you love Christ and you love the cross and your hope for salvation is in what Christ has accomplished for you, that he died for your sins, that he rose again from the dead, that he gives you his righteousness, that he's made Uh, inheritance for you that's incorruptible and undefiled and it doesn't fade away and he makes it so you get to spend eternity with him and he seals you with the Holy Spirit when you look at salvation and you think of where it is that you are and what it is that you believe it is only by grace that you're in that place it's not because you softened your own heart it's not because you finally figured it out it's not for any other reason than that God saved you because apart from that we would just be like these soldiers who fall to the ground or like these guys who who have pain and sores and still did not repent of their deeds but rather blaspheme God that's the condition of man's heart praise God for his grace in our lives praise God for his grace in my life so then Jesus asked them again whom are you seeking And they said, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus answers in verse 8, saying, I have told you that I am he. Therefore, if you seek me, let these go their way. That the saying might be fulfilled which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I've lost none. Now, again, he reveals himself. I am. But notice what he says after that. You seek me, let these go their way. Let the disciples, let those who are followers of mine, let them go their way. You seek me. And then he gives a reason for that. That the saying might be fulfilled, which he spoke, saying, of those whom you gave me, I've lost none. Now that saying that is revealed, that's not coming from the Old Testament, that's coming from the mouth of our Lord. Here you see John making the words of Christ equivalent to Scripture. This must be fulfilled. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost none. It's interesting also just to think about this as far as Why would he say that? 
Why is he saying, let these ones go? Because of those you've given me, I'll lose none of them. Quite possibly, he knows that what would take place if they also are arrested at this particular time would be so shattering upon them that one might be lost. And he's saying, that can't happen. Let them go. Take me, because I'll lose none of them. The reason why I say that is because I I know that the propensity of me would be, as we sing in the song, I'm prone to wander. I'm prone to wander. If I were in a place where I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to go through all these things, I'm prone to wander. Yet, if Christ tells me that he began a good work in me and he'll be faithful to complete it, If Christ tells me that he's the author and he's the finisher of my faith, if God tells me that of all that the Father has given him, he'll lose none of them, then I will not be lost. He will not allow that to happen. He will not allow that to occur. And so he specifically says, let them go. Of those whom you gave me, none will be lost. Well, then comes Simon Peter having a sword, and he drew it, and he struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear, and the servant's name was Malchus. And Jesus says to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Matthew gives us a little bit more information of what's taking place here. It says, suddenly one of those who were with Jesus stretched out his hand and drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. But Jesus said to him, put your sword in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot now pray to my Father and he'll provide me with more than 12 legions of angels? How then could the scripture be fulfilled that it must happen thus? Matthew gives us a little bit more detail. I could have 12 legions of angels come down right now if I wanted. But then scripture would not be fulfilled. When you're picturing what's taking place here, this is not a tragedy that's occurring. This is the creator of the universe who's become man and he has laid down his life for his people. He's doing it. He doesn't need Peter to pull out a sword and chop off some poor guy's ear. Rather, he could have 12 legions of angels come down. And he's saying, that is not going to happen. Matthew 26 and verse 55, it says that in that hour, Jesus said to the multitudes, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I sat daily with you teaching in the temple and you did not seize me. But all this was done that the scriptures of the prophets might be fulfilled. And then all the disciples forsook him and they fled. They left. Luke gives us a little bit more information saying that this man, Malchus, whose ear was cut off, Jesus goes and he touches his ear and heals it and makes it whole again. Credible miracle of the Lord right before he goes to the cross. The man's ear has been chopped off. 
Most would say that it wasn't that Peter had such great aim that he chopped off the guy's ear and then he said, I'll take every part of you. No, I, I think he's a bad aim and missed the guy's head and took off his ear. But Jesus goes and just says, no, I'm going to heal him. And he heals his ear. Who is in control? Is Jesus panicking? No. Peter, put your sword away. Give me that ear. Let me put it back. I could have 12 legions of angels come down if I wanted to. But that's not what I want. And the reason that he gives is, shall I not drink the cup which my father has given me? Shall that not occur? Now you remember in his prayer when we began, as he's there and he's in the garden, he's praying and he's saying, Father, if it's possible, take this cup from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. Now we find him in this place where he just knows this is the will of my father that I take that cup, that I drink from that cup, that cup that is coming from the Father. What is that cup? That cup is the wrath of God. Radical. I mean, the wrath of God. The wrath of God where it says the wages of sin is death. The wrath of God which makes it so that those who are unbelievers would spend eternity in a place of blackest darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth, where the fire isn't quenched, where the worm cannot die, eternal fire. Black, in a place where it's being separated from the glory of God for all eternity, outside of the presence of God, outside of his joy, outside of his pleasures. No wonder Jonathan Edwards in his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, says that if we just knew, if we in this congregation knew of one person who is in our midst, who would spend eternity in hell, if we knew of one person there, we would all weep with a bitter cry for them. The most horrific place that you could ever imagine as far as being under the wrath of God. To drink from that cup of the wrath of God. And every unbeliever will drink of that cup. Every unbeliever will drink of that cup of his wrath. But to think that Jesus is here saying, Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? Put your sword away. Shall I not drink that cup? Shall I not drink it? Our Lord drank that cup for us. He drank it. In verse 12 it says, Then the detachment of troops and the captain and the officers of the Jews arrested Jesus and they bound him. He is about to go to the cross. And he is fully in control. He's about to go to the cross and he knows exactly what he's going to do. He's about to go to the cross and yet he goes to the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells Judas what you do, do it quickly. He comes to them and says, who are you seeking? I am he. I am. They all fall down to the ground, and yet 
when they get up again, I am he. Let these ones go. Take me. Peter, put your sword away. Malchus, here is your ear back. Should I not drink the cup which my father has given me? This is not a tragedy. This is glorious for us as believers. When you think of a God who so loves you that he gave his only begotten son, when you think of a God who so loves you that he is now showing you the full extent of his love, when he willingly goes and says, I must drink of that cup. As we continue our study in the Gospel of John, you're going to find him going to the cross and you're going to see what's taking place as he goes to the cross. But what is taking place is he is taking the wrath that we deserve upon himself. It is no small thing. Rather, just moments before, he is in the garden sweating great drops of blood because of the anguish that is in him as he's about ready to drink of that cup. He drank that cup so that you and I would never, ever, ever have to drink of any of it. Of any of it. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. He has freed us from the wrath of God. He has taken that upon himself so that we could be as white as snow and clothed with robes of righteousness and approach his throne boldly. Praise be to our God who said, Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me? My Father has given me this cup. And with that, let's pray and we'll have Pastor Bill lead us in communion. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you. We thank you that you drank that cup so that none of us, through faith in you, Lord, would ever have to drink of that cup. I pray, Lord, that, that there would be just such just heartfelt, passionate gratitude in our hearts. That when we partake in communion on this morning, Lord, that there would be so much thankfulness amongst your saints. You drank a cup of the wrath of Almighty God, so that we would never, ever have to drink of any of it. Thank you, Lord. Thank you for the good news. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you that John just reveals to us your sovereignty, your power, your control over all that was taking place, and that you willingly became a sacrifice for us. We praise you for that. And I pray, Lord, in every part of the rest of our service, Lord, that you'd be exalted. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.